This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. The future will be radically different from the present, and it will either be radically different because we have significantly, you know, we've grasped the nettle and we've been prepared to make the sorts of changes that initially will be quite challenging socially and politically to reduce our carbon dioxide emissions, or a little bit further down the line, we will be faced with huge social and political repercussions because of a very significantly changing climate. That is Kevin Anderson. As one of the world's top climate scientists, he says the hard facts about climate change are not getting out and never made it to the Paris Climate Talks. It's a shocking, revealing interview. Then we'll travel to Australia, where host Vivian Langford of the Beyond Zero Emissions show talks in studio with David Spratt, author of Code Red, plus a union icon and psychologist, on the eve of the Paris Talks. More Frank Talk. I'm Alex Smith. Buckle up. This is Radio EcoShock. During the Paris Climate Talks, one leading scientist says the fundamentals of the whole process is wildly optimistic. It starts with climate models that assume too much, spills into unreal scientific advice, and ends with rosy media reports saying we can keep on growing without wrecking the climate. Our Western lifestyles won't be too greatly inconvenienced, they say. The odd man out at the party is Kevin Anderson. He's a well-known professor of energy and climate change at the University of Manchester. Anderson is also the deputy director of the Tyndall Centre for Climate Change Research, a leading scientific institute not only in Britain but in the world. Kevin Anderson, it's an honour to have you here on Radio EcoShock. It's my pleasure to join you. Well, last summer we broadcast a speech you gave, believe it or not, in 2012 at the Cabot Institute. It was very popular. But I'm calling you today about a new article you published in the journal Nature Geoscience. The title is Duality in Climate Science. What is the duality? This duality really relates to a particular group of us in climate science. So it's less the people that we imagined in the very detailed fundamental research and more those of us that work on the, on the cusp between the climate science and the policy realm. So typically it's the, it's the group of people, and there's a very large, significant group of, of climate scientists who, who develop what we call emission scenarios. We think about what the future may hold in terms of our levels of carbon dioxide emissions, the type of energy systems that we, we're going to be having, and we link that to the climate science. And that particular group of scientists, of academics, that's where this duality is, is occurring, whereby our own understanding of the climate science tells us a story that really is, is very challenging and in many respects you know, has potentially quite dire repercussions for the future. And because we're also aware of the, the political and the economic framing of our society, we then translate that, that scientific message directly. So we, we end up adjusting, massaging the message to fit with the current economic political framing. So, in a, in a, and we don't always necessarily do this consciously. I think there's a, it's, a, it's a real challenge for us to, to recognize the severity of what our climate science tells us and play that out against the day-to-day lives in which we live. So I think what we've got is, is this, this duality whereby we're, we're reluctant to be directly you know, candid and uh, clear about what the science says in terms of the, um, what we need to do for policy. So our science has really very significant political repercussions and we are steering a dangerous path 
in that we are not prepared to tell our policymakers, our paymasters, the direct indications of our own analysis. Now, the stated goal for the Paris Climate Talks is to keep global mean temperature rise below 2 degrees centigrade from pre-industrial levels. Dr. James Hansen says it's crazy to say 2 degrees C would be safe. What do you think? Well, actually, I have to say I do agree with, with Hansen on this. When we say it's safe, if we're really blunt about this, what we really mean by that is that a group of rich, white, typically men, have come up with a, a threshold between what we consider to be acceptable and dangerous climate change. And what we mean by that is that people like us, the, the relatively wealthy in the world, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, but elsewhere in the world as well, other wealthy groups, think that we can deal with the repercussions of two degrees centigrade. We can insulate ourselves from those repercussions because we have the wherewithal, we have the wealth and the educational framework and so forth to deal with those impacts. If you're poorer and live in the Southern Hemisphere in a more climatically vulnerable zone, then you are going to find two degrees C uh, is certainly going to be uh, in, in well into the dangerous category. Many people will have their lives severely impacted. Indeed, many people will die as a consequence of a two degree C temperature rise. Uh, and, and undoubtedly, some people are already dying as a, as a consequence of the one degree C temperature rise we've already seen. So whether two degrees C is safe or not depends upon where you're coming from. And I think that given that the people who are going to be impacted by climate change are a group of people that have had very, very little to do with causing the problem. In other words, their emissions are incredibly low. There is some sort of moral imperative, in my view, that when we determine what is safe or dangerous, that we should err on the side of the, the poorer, the more climatically vulnerable, rather than the rich and the wealthy. But we have gone the wrong way on this. So two degrees C, I share Hansen's concerns for perhaps slightly different reasons, that it is probably too high a threshold. Having said that, I think now it is, the, it is the best that we can hope for. And even at two degrees C, we are going to struggle to stay at that temperature. Well, here's another thing that drives me crazy, and you describe it in your new paper. The question too often said to be answered is, what do we need to do to have a 66% chance or better of staying below two degrees C? Now, if we were playing Russian roulette, we have a pistol, we have only three chambers, and one of them contains the bullet, the stakes are not just our own lives here. As you know, it's all our descendants, possibly much of life on Earth. Who in their right mind would pull the trigger with only a 66% chance of surviving? I mean, that, that is completely true. And in fact, most people are, are bought into the idea that climate change is serious. Now, but, but the problem is we're not prepared to, to accept the repercussions. So there is this, what I often call cognitive dissonance. We hold these two positions together. So it's not just the climate scientists here. There's all of us, because we realize that the repercussions of letting emissions continue as they're going now, and even reducing them at the sorts of levels we're talking about in Paris, which are still far removed from what's going to be necessary. We know that, that, that we're heading in a, in a poor direction in terms of the climate and the temperature. But we also know that to, to get ourselves off that pathway is going to have very significant implications for how we live our lives. So we hold these two contradictory positions because it is too difficult to put them together and start to recognize the, the, challenge of the challenges that we actually face. So we are actually putting that gun to our heads, but we're almost looking the other way whilst we're doing it. So we're keeping our fingers crossed. We're, you know, we're doing everything else we can, to, which is obviously not any real action, but just, just to try to pretend that the problem is not, not really that severe. And I think the climate scientists, this particular group that I outlined before, are party to that as well, that we, we have fed into... Um, well, I called it yesterday when I, in, I was doing an interview somewhere else, a consensus of apathy, that we're not really 
prepared to recognize the severity of the science and then start to bring about the sorts of scale of changes that would be, that would be necessary. So I can understand why we're doing it. And you know, we're all op optimistic. We don't really want to see ourselves as the, the fundamental cause of the problem. We want the problem to be solved by technology or by someone else. And everyone is in that same situation. And no one has been the, is the first person to stand up and say, right, we need some action. So we are, in a sense, it's a tragedy of the commons. Um, it's probably the best way of saying this. Tell us about the bias in modeling that provides optimistic pathways for cutting emissions. Well, every year that we've failed on climate change, and, and let's be clear, this, this year in 2015, the carbon dioxide emissions in the atmosphere, that we put into the atmosphere for this year would be 60% higher than when we first started to concern ourselves with climate change. For instance, when the first IPCC report came out in 1990. So 25 years later, after 25 years of apparent concern and knowledge on climate change, our emissions this year will be 60% higher. So we're now in a, a position where we've used up almost all of the carbon budget, that's the total amount of carbon dioxide that we can emit into the atmosphere for this two degrees C temperature threshold that we've all signed up to. And what we, what we have to do now, what the scientists who are producing these scenarios and these, these models, what they are doing now is rather than saying, well, we are going to require significant social, political and economic change, they have dialed in a new technology. This technology, which is often referred to as BECS, Biomass Energy Carbon Capture and Storage, in isolation almost sounds like it makes a little bit of sense. But when you start to think of the scale at which they're applying it, it is incredibly dangerous. So what, what is being assumed is that because we're not prepared to reduce our carbon dioxide emissions, our, our use of fossil fuels in particular, what we are now claiming is that we're going to suck the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere at some point a long way off in the future, which allows us to maybe not quite businesses have business as usual, but at least not to have to make the significant changes that would affect our lives. So we can still make the statements that the current framing of Western society is perfectly reasonable to continue with, with a few efficiency improvements and a little bit of a shift towards renewables, which is the sort of rhetoric we're hearing. That is permitted because we're going to suck this carbon dioxide out. And we're going to do that by growing lots and lots of biomass, trees and other forms of plant material all around the globe. We're going to harvest it. We're going to burn it in our power stations. And then we're going to capture the CO2, the carbon dioxide that goes up the chimney. And we're going to almost liquefy that carbon dioxide and store it somewhere very deep underground for the next few thousand years. But as these plants grow, they suck the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And as we then capture the carbon dioxide in the chimney in our power stations, we're effectively sucking the CO2 out of the air. In isolation, in a lecture room somewhere, that sounds like it makes a little bit of sense. When you start to think of applying that at the planetary scale that we're talking about here, when you're also trying to feed seven to nine billion people, when every other sector is expecting to use biomass, the aviation sector assumes it will be flying its planes using biofuel, the shipping sector thinks it will be using biomass, the chemical industry thinks it will be using it as a feedstock, and this, this new technology called BEX will be sucking the CO2 out of the air. Then you start to think we live in a round planet with a limited amount of food uh, availability, a limited amount of land. You put these together, and there are many serious natural scientists are very concerned that this simply is not viable. This is a ruse to allow us to carry on our current way of living, and it will ultimately, it's a, ultimately, it's a very dangerous ruse because it, it, it uh, means that we're going to breach our two degrees C carbon budget. We're probably going to breach a three degrees C and head towards four degrees C, and it is very likely these technologies will not succeed. So that's the approach that we're taking at the moment. It is the new technique that allows us to carry on living lives as we're doing now. 
Could you take a, as long as you need, really, to give us some of the numbers from the budget? I mean, I don't personally think the planet has any acceptable carbon budget left, but that's me. But let's assume the numbers provided by the IPCC for these climate talks are right. What are they saying we can burn, and how does that break down in the real world? Okay. Well, first, I have to say I think I agree with you that we have no carbon budget left for what I would say is a, is a, is a morally acceptable safe level. We have seen one degree temperature rise already, and we know that people are being severely impacted by that, as it is today. Having said that, as I said before, I think two degrees C is the best we can aim for, and the IPCC have been very clear about this. They've provided us with a series of carbon budgets for different chances, different probabilities of two degrees C temperature. Now, whether people are familiar with the numbers or not here, but the, the, the headline number that the IPCC has provided from the wealth of science that, that, it, that it considers is 1,000 billion tons of carbon dioxide, a lot of carbon dioxide, between about 2010, 2011, out towards the end of the century. And that is the total amount of carbon that we can put into the atmosphere for a two degrees C rise across this century. But the first thing to, to note here, and it's really very important, this, is that that 1,000 billion tons of carbon dioxide starts from about 2011, and we're now in 2015. We're almost at the end of 2015, and we've emitted about 140 to 150 billion tons. In other words, about 15%, 1,5% of that budget has already been used between 2011 and where we are today. So that's a significant part already gone in just a few years. You then have to think also that when we, uh, my focus has been my me- primarily on issues of energy, so producing the energy we need to live our lives. But we also have carbon dioxide emissions from the production of cement and very large levels from the production of cement. It's not just from the energy used to make the cement, but the actual process of making cement emits carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And if you think that through in some detail and how important cement is to our lives, I've heard from the cement industry that it is that cement is about, I think, the second most used material on the planet after water. We use huge quantities of cement. It is in pretty much all of our buildings, our infrastructures, whether it's roads or rail networks, whether it's the foundations for wind turbines or for nuclear power stations. Virtually all of the major structures that we, that we build in the West and increasingly in the poorer parts of the world rely upon cement. And even if you're very optimistic about what will happen there, then that takes about another, well, probably about another 15% of the carbon budget away. And then finally, there's the issue of deforestation that we should try to stop deforestation as quickly as is possible and some of the other land use changes. But it's still, I think it has to be said, realistically, we know we're not going to stop deforestation tomorrow morning. And therefore, there's some, going to be some additional carbon dioxide emissions as we slash and burn some of the forests around the globe. Now, let's hope we can reduce that deforestation as quickly as possible. But nevertheless, I would suggest you're talking about another 50 or 60 gigatons, possibly even as high as 100 or 150 gigatons, billion tons. So that's another somewhere between 7 and 15% that, that has gone. If you take all of that into account, what you have left is not 1,000 billion tons of carbon dioxide, but only 650 billion tons. In other words, a very significant reduction, about 40-odd percent, almost a 40% reduction in the total amount of carbon dioxide we have available. And that has um, huge political repercussions when we think that through in terms of, well, what then do we need to do to, to survive within that sort of carbon budget? And if we think of the budget a bit like our, a bit like our bank account, if you had a thousand pounds in the bank and you came to spend it on something, you found that 400 pounds had already gone missing or dollars, so I should say, a thousand dollars in your bank account and you came to spend it and 400 had gone, then you'd, you'd be severely constrained on what you could spend your money on. And that's the position we find ourselves in on climate change. And 
additionally, additionally worrying to that is that we are using up our carbon budget at a very, very fast rate. So this year alone, we'll probably put somewhere 35, 37 billion tons of carbon dioxide will go into the atmosphere. And every year we're using that much carbon. So if you put all of that together, this is why I'm coming down to with the conclusion that it is not just about technology that will solve the problem. It is actually about huge social and political change that is essential if we are to deal with climate change. And even if we don't, even if we're not prepared to deal with climate change, then there will be huge social political repercussions anyway, because we will be hit by the impacts of unchecked climate change. Yes, you're calling for a revolution in our energy system instead of the sort of gradual evolution and transition being talked about in Paris. Is that right? Uh, Yes, certainly. I think the language that's been used um, in the build-up to Paris over the last year or so has been very misleading. You often hear people, very senior scientists often saying that we will have to phase out fossil fuel use by the end of the century. We have to phase out fossil fuel use by about 2050 if we're really serious about the two degrees C carbon budget. And that's a very different time frame. And I think the reason people have not been keen, keen to say that, because then that, has, that again has direct repercussions on our political system today. As 2100 feels like it's so long away, we can certainly await lots of new technologies. But 2050, and we think about phasing out all of our system today, well, that, that, that brings it much, much closer to home. When we think that any new power station that we build today will still be running in 2050. So from an infrastructure point of view, from a power station point of view, then 2050 is really just around the corner. So we're all aware then that we have to make sure that whatever we build today has to be very low carbon. So if we look at the UK, for instance, just in the last two weeks in the UK, the government has proposed building of up to another 25 to 30 gas-fired power stations. Now, gas has a very high carbon footprint. When you burn gas, you get a lot of carbon dioxide. Those power stations will run for 25 to 40 years. That means that we are locking in the UK to continue to use a very high carbon energy source for the next three or four decades. Now, that is completely incompatible with what the carbon budgets are requiring from countries like the UK. So you can see that you you have immediate political repercussions if we're honest, direct and candid about what the carbon budgets are telling our policymakers and our society today. Well, if the world energy budget is already close to climate bankruptcy and we have a lineup of billions of people who expect to join this party of cheap energy slaves, somebody, Kevin Anderson, somebody somewhere is going to have to give up carbon privileges. Who? Well, very fortunately, the last few weeks, I've also seen a new publication from two people called Chancel and Piketty. Piketty being quite famous for some of his economics work over the last few years. And they've looked at the carbon dioxide emissions around the globe and, and, and who, they, who those emissions come from. And what's very clear from their work, and it's the sort of arguments that myself and a few other colleagues have been making for at least 10 years, is that the lion's share of the emissions come from a very small percentage of the population. So if we are serious about climate change, it's the people who are the high emitters today that need to make radical changes to how they are living their lives in the short term to bring their emissions down. I'm not sure this is what you were were implying this, but certainly a lot of people will read into what you were saying that, yes, but the poor of the world, of this world, also want to become wealthy and also want to become high consumers and use lots of energy like the wealthy ones of us do today. Now, that that may well be true, but the poor of the world will not be wealthy enough in the time frame that we have to deal with two degrees C for their emissions to be very significant. So actually, when you really look at the carbon budget and the time frame that we have to respond for two degrees centigrade, 
then you know, very unfortunately, the very obvious people that have to make the largest change are the high emitters today. It is the level of consumption by people like me and probably yourself, maybe some of our listeners, some of your listeners, that these are the ones that have to make these huge changes. Some of the work that Piketty pulled out, some of the numbers are quite interesting here, in that he's, I think he looked at the top 1% of high emitters in the, in the US, and they emit over 300 tonnes of carbon dioxide per year. Then I think he looked at the bottom, I think it was the bottom 1% in Nigeria, as I recall, and I think they were somewhere about as low as 0.15 tonnes. So you start to see differences that are several hundred, if not several thousand times different in the levels of carbon dioxide emissions amongst individuals living on the same planet. And if we are serious about two degrees centigrade, it is very clear that as well as making a, a, a radical move towards low carbon energy supply, and that, is, you know, that will be a revolutionary shift, and that means no more fossil fuel stations being built in the wealthy parts of the world, then at the same time, we must also reduce our energy consumption by those of us that are wealthy. And that is not just the people in the US or in the EU. That also includes you know, about 300 million people in China who consume energy and therefore emit carbon dioxide at levels very similar to those of us within the US and the EU. Nevertheless, there are also about a billion people in China have very low emissions. But it, so it's, it's the high-emitting people around the planet who are probably not more than, a, many more than one billion of the, one to one and a half billion of the seven billion on the planet are the high-emitting people that need to make those significant reductions in the short to medium term. I wonder, are we asking too much of our scientists? I mean, they signed up, some of them, for research, and now we want them to become public battlers. What do you think? Well, that's a very fair question, and I think that, and I have a lot of sympathy and understanding for my colleagues who do not really want to put their head above the parapet. You know, they signed up to be, as I say, scientists and academics. They want to do their work rigorously and carefully, um, and they don't really want to get into the into the political fray. That as soon as you put your head up, you're you're criticised by one set side for one thing, and you're criticised by the sceptics for another thing. So I, I really do understand that that difficult dilemma. Nevertheless. Climate change is an existential problem. It's a problem about our existence. It has huge implications for human lives and ecosystems around the planet. And I think sometimes we have to, we have to park our sensibilities and start to be a bit clearer about what our analysis is telling us. I'm not saying that, they, that we have to get involved, that scientists should necessarily get involved in playing politics. But there's a very diff big difference between playing politics and describing very clearly what the political repercussions are of our scientific analysis. And it, it's that part that I think that, that the scientific community, maybe not every scientist, but the scientific community has to come together and ensure that it does very clearly spell out the political repercussions of what our science tells us. Now, that's quite different from playing politics. But nevertheless, it, is, you know, it, it does have a very strong political goal or political flavor to, to what we have to do. And, and that is going to be challenging for us because, as, I say, as you say, you know, most of us have signed up to, to, to not, not get engaged with this, this sort of way of thinking about life. We want to, we want to carry on with our science in a, in a robust, objective fashion within universities and so forth that we have done for many years and not get involved with the, the mucky, dirty work that the world that is outside of our, of our laboratory doors. If we assume, Kevin Anderson, that the Paris talks end with voluntary aspirational goals, talking about action by 2070 or beyond and not reached anyway, where do we go from here? Should we abandon this COP process? It's been going on for a long time and emissions keep climbing. And if we did abandon it, what could possibly replace it? Yeah, I, I am actually very much in favor of the COP process, but I think to think that that is the only game in town is really very mistaken. At the risk of there's a certain risk for me talking from the EU here, but I personally think we should have parked the US a long time ago 
on climate change. When, when the US decided not to proceed with Kyoto, I think the rest of the world, where of course by far the majority of the population lives, we kowtowed to the US, um, and I think that was a real mistake. We should have said, right, we will get on with it, with dealing with climate change. We, you know, we will have bilateral agreements between the Chinese and the EU and so forth. And if the Americans or some of the American cities want to come on board, as undoubtedly some cities would have done so, then I think we'd have made a lot more progress. I think we have pussyfooted around trying to keep the US particularly on board on climate change for far too long. So you know, I, I, we, could, we could have taken a different route to the one, the one that we have taken. But where we, we are now where we are in 2015. And it still seems to me, though, that, we're, that we are being very uh, cautious in, in our approach to make sure that we keep everyone on board. And by doing that, or to do that, we are so significantly reducing the, the level of our aspirations that we are going to be heading for much, much higher temperatures. To say then that we should just dismantle that process, I think, is a mistake. I think we must, we must continue with COP. I think what, what happens at Paris is incredibly important. But it is not the only game. We have to pursue everything else that we can. I personally think that the EU should have gained, engaged very thoroughly a long time ago with the Chinese to ensure that the EU, which is, I think, about one-third of global trade comes into the EU, as I understand it, it should have set up carbon standards for all of the imports and exports and all of the goods it produces within its own boundaries that are in line with two degrees centigrade. And it should have said that anyone who wants import or export uh, or import into the EU has to meet those standards. Now, this would have huge repercussions for WTO, for the, for the new TTIP and so forth, if that, if that goes ahead, for, this, for the 1944 Chicago Agreement that allows the, means the EU cannot put taxes on, on, on aviation fuel for planes that come in and out of the EU. We have to question these great global agreements that are stopping parts of the world put in place the structures and mechanisms that could drive their emissions down. So I'm, I'm, I hope, is, is that clear what I'm saying there, or is that something I should go over again there, do you think? Absolutely clear, and I have to agree, and I think there's some ideas that will be novel for our North American listeners in what you just said. Well, as we wrap up, what kind of reaction are you getting from the scientific community to your new paper, Duality in Climate Science? <laughs> Well, it, um, going by my email, generally very positive. So, and this is often the case that privately I get a lot of support. And I've, I've recently come back from a sort of fairly lengthy chip round talking to various climate modelers and others, um, integrated assessment modelers and other groups around Europe. And yeah, privately I get a lot of support for the things that I'm saying. I think now I get less public disagreement with what I'm saying, but people do not refer to it so often. So I think beforehand, what would happen over the last few years, I, you know, publicly people would disagree and privately they would agree with me. And this happened repeatedly over at least the last five to seven years, if not a little bit longer. I think now what I'm finding is that very few people are really disagreeing publicly, but they're not always prepared to engage in the sort of subject matter that I'm, that I'm bringing up. But privately, they say this is really important. I, you know, they don't really disagree with me. Very few people I talk with disagree with the broad analysis and the numbers that I'm using. They don't necessarily like the language I'm using, and that's, that's perfectly reasonable. I'm just, I just make the argument that the language I use is in line with the numbers. If the numbers look very severe, then the adjectives I should use should match the severity of the numbers. And actually, I think that's what we've done as scientists, is we've, we've had numbers that paint a very dire future, and then we've used adjectives to describe this to the general public, to the policymakers, that are not in line with what our numbers are suggesting. And I would argue the language I'm using is much more aligned with what our analysis tells us. I think we are seeing a change, and I, I really wish we'd seen this change amongst the scientific community two years ago, because I think that would have been really helpful as we'd run into Paris. I think we'd have had a different set of negotiations going on now, a different mood music, a different set of language being used, or a different discourse. 
So I think, unfortunately, I think the shift in, the, in many people in the scientific community who are very, um, are very perturbed and concerned about how, climate, how the severity of the climate change situation is being underplayed. That is occurring. A lot of scientists are concerned about that now and are being a bit more vociferous about it. But I think, unfortunately, I think it's not going to have a big play in, in Paris. But I think it post probably will start to come out much more over the next year post-Paris. Is there anything I've missed that you'd like to add? There's this point in the end that if we expect that the future is going to just look like an adjusted, incrementally adjusted version of the present or of the past, then I think we are going to be sorely disappointed. The future will be radically different from the present, and it will either be radically different because we have significantly, you know, we've grasped the nettle and we've been prepared to make the sorts of changes that initially will, will, will be quite challenging socially and politically to reduce our carbon dioxide emissions, or a little bit further down the line, we will be faced with huge social and political repercussions because of a very significantly changing climate. The first of those means we have some control over the situation. We have some agency. We can make things go in the direction that we think is the most appropriate. The second of those, where we just let business as usual carry on with a few incremental adjustments, is that the climate will hit us in various forms all around the planet um, at different times. And the repercussions of that will be ones that we are always trying to, to sort of second guess and to fight against. And that is a much more chaotic, catastrophic future than the one of some controlled reduction in carbon dioxide emissions or very dramatic controlled reduction in carbon dioxide emissions in the short term. But the future will be radically different from the present either way. One we have some control over and one we don't. I'm hearing we can climb down off the cliff or fall off the cliff, and I'd prefer to climb. We've been speaking with Dr. Kevin Anderson. He's a world-known climate scientist, a professor of energy and climate change at the University of Manchester, and he's also the deputy director of the Tyndall Centre for Climate Change Research in the UK. His recent paper, Duality in Climate Science, is available in full, free at kevinanderson.info. Find links in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.info. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. It's been my pleasure. I'm Alex Smith, reporting for Radio Ecoshock. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. As the world hangs in the balance, this is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith, and I know cutting-edge radio when I hear it. I'm going to play you part of the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show on 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, Australia. Following discussion of the Climate Action March in Melbourne, November 27th, host Vivian Langford starts in-depth with David Spratt, co-author of the book Climate Code Red, and host of the influential blog of the same name. Then you'll hear from Dr. Colin Long, leader in the National Tertiary Education Union, and he champions workers in the transition away from carbon. Vivian's third guest is psychologist Lynn Bender from the group Psychology for a Safe Climate. The group starts off talking about the climate movement in Melbourne, which I find exciting, but trust me, it's not long before they dive into issues that affect us all. Here is Vivian Langford. Okay, David Spratt's with us. And look, David Spratt's someone I admire. He's been a catalyst for getting real on climate for a decade. Me, with my delusions, I always find them quite quickly dispelled when I go to one of his talks. 
And since Climate Code Red, he has published reports and given hundreds of talks on bright siding and why it's a bad strategy to always tell the positive story, permafrost bubbling our way to the apocalypse, and he explains why there's no carbon budget left, really, and why two degrees is far too high. We shouldn't be even contemplating that. So welcome, David. Thanks for the cheery intro. (laughs) Well, tell us about now about the diversity of groups mobilising around the Paris Climate Conference. Well, look, the People's Climate March in Melbourne is coming Friday at 5.30 at the State Library is really in in part an attempt by the climate movement to build more strength, more power. Um, And in that I think it's done well because we've got a whole lot of people signed up who we haven't seen before, uh, who haven't been active as active before. Um, One of the really exciting things is that faith groups have really come on board and just yesterday eight faith umbrella groups in Victoria. So this is not individual churches but umbrella bodies such as the the Council of Churches, the Jewish Community Council, the Islamic Society, the umbrella bodies for Hindus, for Buddhists and so on, all signed on to a statement together. And this is unprecedented in Victoria. And I'll just read a couple of sentences because I think it really shows what's how it's changing and their commitment and they say in this statement we stand together in our moral obligation to care for sacred earth the most vulnerable people and all human life is a gift entrusted to our common care as we are confronted by the growing impacts of climate change in all corners of the world more extreme weather events disrupt food production and water security, which what Colin was just talking about in relationship to Syria. Exacerbate hunger, cause economic insecurity and force displacement. Syria again. We share a common concern for nature and for global social justice and are deeply concerned that climate change is a threat to precious human life and to the survival of humanity unless strong and urgent action is is taken to address the causes. And that's just one of the sectors that's come on board. So I think just let's give a sense that this is not the same old suspects of just a few Greenian and climate groups. We've got unions, no. we've got these, we've got health workers, we've got bike riders riding yep. in from Moreland and from Ceres. It's really going to be a very diverse and exciting event. And we've always been talking about building the movement and um, George Marshall came out here, I think, with the psychologist for Safe Climate and he talked about talking to diverse people and how each little community has its own leaders who can talk to them in their own language. And so people who are coming from the Sikh community, for example, might have a sort of a, a Sikh sort of world view that their leaders can appeal to Look, when they're I, talking I about I can't get Catholic high school populations to come to the march, mm. but... No, the Pope can. <laughs> but, the, but the Pope and Catholic Earth Care and this statement and having a Catholic cardinal visiting yep. from Honduras speak at the march can. And we know that... That, that messages work better when you trust and are familiar with the people who are, who are giving you those messages and that's why this diversity in organisation is important. Well, David, can I just ask you, how can it be that all these groups that probably have huge amounts of things in conflict between themselves and within their groups, you know, ideological differences, they can all just write this statement that you've read out and, and agree on something such as, quote, a just transition to clean energy. How can they all be suddenly all on behalf of clean energy? Look, the ideological schisms between various faiths <laughs> would require several, be- yeah. <laughs> several PhDs and many of Colin's colleagues to uh, unravel, but there is common cause. Uh, they were having a discussion about what 
their interfaith banner should say and the words care for sacred earth was something they could all sign off on now the word care is really prominent in the encyclical in the pope's encyclical but care for sacred earth was something that all of them said we agree with this so I mean, all these processes of bringing people together despite their differences is, is about finding common cause, com- common language and common action. And I hope that's what we'll do on Friday. So consider yourself very royally invited, listener, from faith group, union group, uh, green groups. You don't have to be from any one of those. You can just be a citizen who's been thinking about this a lot. And you'll find, as Lynn said, some comfort in joining together with, I think, a very impressive big rally. It'll be one of those big ones. Can I just give one very simple example so there's a whole lot of feed-in events before the main rally okay. bike riders coming from Moreland um, from the mechanics at 4.30 um, coming from Ceres at 4.45 the unions as Colin said are marching down from Trades Hall and the faith groups are having a little thing called a farewell to coal uh, with a coffin and a choir and, and, and all sorts of little things uh, around the corner from the main march at Wesley uh, Church at 148 Lonsdale Street from 5 o'clock on Friday and they will all gather there and various interfaith speakers will go through a set of words to say some things about coal what our Pacific leaders have been sh- saying so uh, all those all those leading events are on the website mm. at um, uh, peoplesclimate.com.au forward slash Melbourne and you'll see all these leading events listed if you want to join whatever is appropriate for you. <laughs> you seem to be getting quite excited about it. Look, for a veteran person of many progressive movements, and I know Lynn is too, how do you think the sheer numbers of this big march here and worldwide, and knowing that they're part of something that is worldwide, will change the people who attend it just can't end with this one rally. It has to tran- have some effect on those people to motivate them, activate them, let's say. Look, I think when people go to really big events, there is a certain spirit or power that, that mm-hmm. often is part of that event. And you feel special. There's all these other people there who agree with you. It's exciting. There's a real diversity in messages and people. And you being part of something big and knowing you're strong in numbers is, is one of the most empowering things you can do and one of the most disempowering things you can do, as Lynn will tell you, is to sit alone at home and do social media for five hours a night. I mean, we live in a world of, of, of breaking down of collectivities, of individualism and selfies and so on. So this, this may be you know, the anti-selfie rally where we don't take photos of ourselves but we take photos of really large groups of people making common cause. Well, so Lynn, can I ask you, in terms of, you know, we have George Brandis putting again in front of Parliament the thing that calls, who uh, uh, tells people who take their very legitimate cause to not have a coal mine in their backyard to court, uh, sort of vigilante litigation like a huge oxymoron, um, green terrorists and so on. People are being vilified. There's a certain little closet group, I hope it's only a small group within the conservative ranks who really hate what we're doing. They think this is, you know, some communist plot that is going to ruin all the projects of capitalism. Well, this rally included. Well, they're protecting what they perceive to be their interests. But James Hansen, who's, I would call, quite a conservative scientist, got arrested over the tar sands. So did Mark Jackard, who um, doesn't like me calling him conservative. I checked that I'd got his uh, checklist right, which I had, but he didn't like conservative, so I had to take it out. Um, but they're people who have been part of the establishment, if you like, that they haven't gone against the flow. They're not, 
you know, just mm. object, objecting people for objecting sake. Um, so has Bill McKibben um, become a protester and activist. And using the law is totally appropriate. The law is there to safeguard the community and people's rights and the world, in fact. So to rail against the use of the law is absurd. Um, I think it's quite uh, worrying because it's a tendency towards... Um, um, now, can I say this? Uh, this is me. This is not 3CR. It's a tendency towards fascism when you take control of the state. I'm sure that's and, been said on this station before now. <laughs> and um, you make laws about things that, that get in the way of your power. Uh, and so I would think it's quite outrageous. I don't think... I think anyone should take it as a great honour to be called an echo, uh, to be in, to find George Brandis uh, criticising them for taking action. I think it's responsible. Uh, that's why I think we all should go to this march because we're saying we're going to stand up and be counted. We're telling our children why we're doing it. I'm telling people no appointments this Friday. Because I'm going to the march. Good on you. Okay, look, David, I want to come back now to the hard stuff about Paris. These pledges that the nations have all put on the table, they will lead to a three-degree-plus warming. You know, Mark Wasdell calculates they lead to about seven degrees of warming. I don't want to quibble about how much warming. It's all far too much. So we need some rigorous thinking. And can you give me, like, short answers, David, on this? Just yes or not even yes or no, but just quick answers, would you mind? Because I know you know this, like, very, very well. Can you just say, do we have enough scientific information for an emergency response? Yes. Do we need consensus among the nations to generate that response? If you wait for consensus, you may wait a long time. What you need is leadership from countries and people who count. What would an emergency response look like if there is no carbon budget left? Um, it would mean planning a really rapid transition. I think the first thing is it, you just cannot leave it to the market. Um, John Schellenhuber, who's head of the Potsdam Institute in Germany and the advisor of the EU and, and Angela Merkel, the leading climate scientist advocate in Europe, says what we need is, and these are wonderful words, a controlled implosion of the fossil fuel industry and that is something that's not going to happen by accident by the market it has to be planned and organised and as Collins talk about we have to think about the Labor Party and the investment funds and the new industries and have a way of doing that and it, it's not difficult it's saying no new fossil fuel industry to start with stop the subsidies the up to $10 billion a year that Australia is putting into fossil fuels plan this controlled implosion and adjust transition and new jobs in different industries, build the new with that money we've liberated and then sort out the problems that remain after that. I mean, these are concrete things that can be done if government intervenes and plans because all rapid changes in society have been brought about by conscious collective social action, whether it be the Marshall Plan or the Japanese or Chinese transitions, these require collective social plan and will. Okay. How can we go back below the one degree of warming that we've caused so far, if not beyond zero? 
we have to stop emitting fossil fuels and then we have to get rid of the extra stuff we put up there. Now, we know there's some ways to do that that are limited in extent. We know that reforestation will draw it down. We know over long periods of time the ocean will take it down. We have to find the ways to get really large amounts of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And we don't know them all now. Um, terrible analogy, when they set out to build the atom bomb, they had no idea how to build one. But if you do the work, you'll find the answers. And this is one of those things where, and Sheldon Huber says, research, 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 as well as, as stopping fossil fuels. And if you do enough of this work, we will get the answers. Okay. Thinking about the Indonesian peat fires and the melting permafrost, which is a subject I, I never knew about permafrost until I read Climate Code Red, and that was the thing that I really took from your book. Permafrost, my gosh, when that starts melting and the methane comes out, we're really game over. So thinking about that, we've just seen it in Indonesia. Why are these climate changes not up for discussion at Paris? Because the international political policy-making process is consciously delusional. It is not setting out to solve the problem. It does not start by recognising the science as it really is, not recognising the problem as it really is. You cannot produce an answer without elaborating the question honestly, and they are not elaborating the question. They talk about carbon budgets being left when, the, when there's none. They talk about two degrees as being a reasonable target when James Hansen says it's a quote-unquote a recipe for disaster. So if you're not honest about the problem, you'll never get the answer, and that's what policymakers are doing because they do not want to rock the boat. Garneau and Stern and all these people have said, we should do these things, but it would be too disruptive to the market, so let's do less. And is this notion that we cannot do anything that's economically disruptive that stops the policy making process from, from having an honest grip with reality as opposed to Sheldon Hooper who says we need a controlled implosion that has a particular economic resonance it means sorry it's not win-win these industries simply have to go and we've seen that renewable energy has been incredibly economic disruptive I mean in Germany the large electricity companies have no share market value anymore the six large companies because they've been disrupted by this new technology. So we have to accept there'll be disruption and radical change. And that's what they can't or won't do in Paris. Right. Colin, do you have anything to put in there? Oh, yes, very. I agree with everything that's been said. Uh, I think a very uh, helpful analogy is to, is to suggest that, uh, you know, in, in the 1930s there were um, British arms manufacturers selling weaponry to the to Germany and it would be like saying after the invasion of Poland by the Nazis that the British government would say to the um, British arms manufacturers oh well we, we won't interfere with your trade in weaponry to to Germany we don't want to interfere in the market for that we should uh, just see how the market lets it determine whether you should sell weaponry to the Germans or not I mean we just didn't do that we just said stop it you're not doing it anymore and we the sort of uh, issue the sort of uh, scale of problem we're facing is something that requires something akin to a World War time mobilisation and, and the sort of planning that took place to enable the Allies to defeat the Nazis in the Second World War. You don't leave it up to the market to just see, oh, it might go here, it might go there. And that is the fundamental problem. I think Naomi Klein discusses this very well in her, in um, oh, This Changes Everything, when she says, unfortunately, the, the real uh, impact of 
climate change has started to become obvious to everyone over the last 30 years, precisely at the same time as neoliberalism took over the global political economy. And we can't deal with climate change while governments are under the thrall of neoliberalism and do and will let the market make all determinations. Uh, and that's why I actually go back to something um, that Lynn said a little earlier, which I slightly disagree with, which is I don't think politicians are often... They're, they're not actually lying about things. They're actually... Uh, they just refuse, categorically refuse, to do anything that uh, interferes in the operation of the market. Uh, that's certainly the case in Australia, and that's why, in the end, people will be disappointed by Turnbull, because Turnbull is a market fundamentalist. Abbott was a market fundamentalist. They'll get around to defending the market in, from different ways, uh, where Abbott was much more disagreeable and aggressive. Turnbull is just a smooth-talking uh, market fundamentalist, but there's in the end, they will both defend the market over the climate. And that's the fundamental problem that we have to deal with at a, at a, a global level. Yeah, look, I think, I, sorry, I think that's exactly right. And the political process is always one of compromise. Yeah. It's always, there's A or there's B, so we'll find a bit of space in the middle. It's never saying A is absolutely necessary. And, I mean, many years, years ago I said, it's if these politicians think that you can negotiate with the laws of physics and chemistry. And you can't. This is the one thing when you the, the, you cannot negotiate with them. They'll just roll over you with heat waves and record or El Ninos, and this year being the hottest year on record. And there's no negotiating with 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 those laws of physics and chemistry. And that's that's the political disjuncture that you have in Paris. I guess um, I agree with everything you're both saying, but I do think they're lying, Colin. I think they're lying by pretending that they're they're not putting the climate last, which yeah, is sure. what they're doing. And they're going there with so-called climate policies that are going to do really well. And, you know, the direct action auction was a stunning success. Yeah. I call that a lie. Yeah, sure. And um, that, they, you know, their concern in negotiating um, at the OECD is climate. No, it's coal. It's business. It's yeah. their, their backside, so to speak. Now, I call that a lie. And yeah. I guess the big lie is that you can have an economy without an earth. Yes. And um, the big, it sort of reminds me of, of a guy who's had a very bad heart attack. He's being wheeled into hospital. He says, I can't go to hospital. I have to go to a meeting. It's a very important meeting at the office. And, you know, of course, he's going to be dead if he doesn't go and have um, some treatment. So there is no, there is no economy without our, without our, um, without climate action. There is a better economy if we, protect the planet as best we can. That's yeah. the truth. Okay, well, I have one last question. We're nearly out of time, and I think David has to uh, leave soon. But the, the next... I think we're talking about a global issue. We're talking about lack of really global leadership because all those leaders are national leaders. But there, there's a, a huge discrepancy between the poorer countries who are suffering the, you know, Typhoon Haiyan, the 
great floods and heat waves in Pakistan, and we, we, any one of us in this room could name the terrible things that are happening. I, I was in Timor earlier this year, and I met the minister, and he said he was going to Paris just to claim loss and damage, you know, and the, the, this green fund will have to be paying for loss and damage to people who, and certainly to Pacific Islands. Now, Colin, I know you have some expertise. You're, in fact, a historian of the Asia-Pacific, so could you tell us just something from your experience to bring it to life that what it's like in those countries and how we can back them up in their arguing position at Paris but also how we can then as Naomi Klein says have a Marshall Plan for the Earth where we make a massive transfer of expertise like your trade union expertise and uh, and financing to the poorer countries yeah that's a massive a massive question you know I've been doing quite a bit of work around Garment workers' rights in Bangladesh. So, you know, we're trying to defend the org- uh, to encourage the organisation of garment workers in Bangladeshi factories, and that's a that's a tough job. I mean, if garment workers and the unions uh, members get killed over there if they try and get organised. It's that bad. Mm. But you know, it also occurs to me that we could be achieving all sorts of great things for Bangladeshi garment workers, but it is one of the most vulnerable countries in the world to climate change and sea level rise, and they could lose it all just from the impact of climate change. So they really need, you know, that has they, they, those struggles need to either be in parallel or the climate change one almost needs to be um, more important in some ways. So uh, one of the problems, of course, with uh, the Pacific and with Asia is, that, you know, the the malign influence or the legacy of colonialism. Um, the uh, So there's not a great deal of trust in the West in many ways, and, you know, it's justified. Uh, we're still trying to extract as much as we can out of um, the, the Asia-Pacific, uh, when I say we, most of the rest of the develop, uh, developed world. And then we have the other added problem of the, the growth of China and the very dirty growth of China. There, there is... You know, talk about how they're trying to introduce more renewable energy and cut back on coal, but it's still a long way to go. And but then on the on the other hand, China and other poor countries do have a claim to try and improve the 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 standards, the living standards of their populations. And fundamentally, I think what it comes down to: yes, we need to transfer wealth, we need to transfer expertise. Although you'll be surprised at the uh, expertise that is available in many developing countries already. But fundamentally what we need to do in the rich world is say, we have too much. We can't continue to grow our economies and pollute in the ways we're doing because some of these poorer countries need to grow their economies and they will they will pump out some CO2 in the process of that to try and improve the living conditions for their people. But we, we can't continue to do that in the rich West. In fact, we have to decelerate very rapidly. Mm, that's a nice word, decelerate. I would like to put us all on carbon rations. but I'd, I'd like a, a controlled implosion. <laughs> what about you, Nin? <laughs> I want people to get the true diagnosis, face the yeah. truth, and take action as much as they can on an individual level, not leave it to others. Not Some of my friends, colleagues, have said, oh, you're still busy with that climate march. Um, as though it's, it's sort of a little hobby of mine. Um, I try not to flog it too much because I'll have no friends in the end. But the reality is that we aren't taking responsibility, individual responsibility, not in the sense that it's all our fault, but we're now responsible to do what we can. That's what we're responsible for. 
Yes, well, our children and our grandchildren will ask us one day, what did you do in the great struggle against climate change? And we want to be able to say, well, we did something and we, um, yes. we stopped it. I yes. don't think that's good enough. I don't care about what they say. Oh, you know, I really don't care about that. That's sort of what did you do in the war, Daddy, that idea. It's so much bigger than that, Colin, I think. I don't really agree with that. Well, but it, it may be that the, even, the, even the top end of town will, may come to understand that their heirs and descendants mm. won't have a place in a hotter world either. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, as a woman and a mother and a grandmother... It has a lot of, um, it motivates me greatly when I feel despair and like giving up because I look at my grandchildren who trust me. I look at my grandchildren who I hope will have a good life. I look at my children and hope they'll get to live to be 68 like me and, you know, be living in a thriving world. I feel immense horror and sadness about their future and I think we need to that's the way we conceptualise the future that's the way we conceptualise um, caring about the future and it's our you know on a selfish level it's always been our feeling of contributing to the future making our lives have a point to them not just as consumers and people who are left behind garbage and pollution. Okay, well, I'm getting the sign off now. Thank you very much. That's been a marvellous discussion, I think. I hope the listeners, you, you've enjoyed it. Just to tell you again, uh, the Climate March starts at 5.30 next Friday, the 27th of November. You can meet at the State Library in Swanson Street and bring your friends. If you can hook up with your union or your faith group, please check out their websites because they'll be perhaps carrying banners or wearing special colours. I know the faith group are you know, wearing all purple. If you need any more details, look it up on the internet on the peoplesclimate.org.au slash Melbourne. That's for the Melbourne people. Uh, for, for the uh, Australia-wide audience, there are marches in other cities. You just need to look up um, peoplesclimate.org.au. And we are joining with people worldwide to do this. And I thank our guests, David Spratt, Lynn Bender, and uh, Dr Colin Long for giving us their hour of passion and telling us all about it so that uh, you will come along to the rally at least, but don't just come to the rally. Come prepared to activate yourself for the long haul because I think it's more than our children and our grandchildren. I think it's really future species and the future of everything. So please come along. Thanks today to the radio team, um, myself, Vivian Langford, um, my colleague Jane on the panel, Teddy, Jody, Roger, Miwa and Glenn. And join us next week, Monday at 5.30. Maybe we'll have some guests from Paris. Radio Ecoshock. There you have it. Lively climate radio from Beyond Zero Emissions broadcast on 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, Australia. 3CR also broadcasts Radio Ecoshock as one of our international partners. Hello to all our listeners there. Get links to Beyond Zero Emissions in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.info. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about your world. Here's a quick bit of music from the group Eclectic Sparks in Yorkshire, UK, as played at the Yorkshire Climate Festival 2015. The title? What you're going to do with your CO2. Weird weather, extreme events, like a strange experiment. Pumping out the gas without a care, like a crazy planetary death. Yorkshire's rivers going up and down. 
blood in our cities, villages and towns. Butterflies and coffee moving up the mountain. 400 ppm and counting. You're in a greenhouse throwing rocks. Opening up Pandora's box. You may be short, you may be tall. Gonna mess you up if you do nothing at all. What you gotta do? What you gotta do, you see O2. What you gotta do? What you gotta do, you see O2. What you gotta do? What you gotta do, you see O2. What you gotta do? What you gotta do, you see O2.